From Duke to North Carolina, a pilgrimage of preaching and college basketball. The difference between looking at the Bible and looking through the Bible. Pastors are competitive? No, say it isn't so. Finding a group of pastors to root for and debrief with might be an antidote for grinding away in isolation. Learning about preaching by doing biography work on voices from the past. The joy of preaching from a passage you've never preached from. When you put a sermon together, do one thing and do one thing well. Today on the Teaching Pastor Podcast, we chat with Mike Pascarello, the Lloyd John Ogilvie Professor of Preaching at Fuller Theological Seminary. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast, and I am here with the Lloyd John Ogilvie Professor of Preaching, and his name is Dr. Michael Pasquarello. How are you, Mike? Craig, I'm doing well, and thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh my goodness, that's quite a mouthful of a title. It is. That's a lot of names to it memorize. It is, and my name means Little Easter in Italian. Oh, Pasquarello. Pascal, little Pascal. Yes. Oh, that's oh, that's great. That's good great. name for a preacher, isn't it? <laughs> you got to have something. I mean, the, sometimes you wonder, you know, when is when does the calling happen? Like yeah. Paul said, before I was even born. Yeah. And so there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you, you were, go. You were donned with a name <laughs> far before you realized. Yes, your calling. I was. Oh, that's fantastic. Now there, uh, you're here full. Now there's two great journeys in your life that I'm curious about, and that mm-hmm. probably deserve a little story. Mm-hmm. One is that you did a degree at Duke Divinity School, and then you did another degree at North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Like that's a major, especially for a college basketball I know. fan, that's a big journey. Like what was that like? Yeah, it really is, Craig. Um, I mean, I, mean, I am a, a big, big base, uh, college basketball fan. And I have to say though, that uh, if you cut me, I bleed Duke blue. Blue. I blue, do. Blue now, I, got my, I did my MDiv at Duke and then I did an MA and PhD at Carolina. On the day I graduated, I walked across the stage and the chancellor handed me my degree and he said, congratulations, Dr. Pascarello. And on that day, I was a Carolina fan. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Baby blue that day. The baby, baby blue, blue that oh, day. That's and, I, and my baby blue doctoral rope. Yeah. yeah. Now the other journey, the other great journey. <laughs> um, now my wife is a graduate of the Master's College. Really? And you are also a graduate of the Master's College. I am. And I teach at Fuller Seminary. Yes. And you teach at Fuller Seminary. Yes. And that is a journey. I think the, the biggest question that I have is probably when you were at Master's, you were kind of a non-denominational Bible church reform dispensational something or other um and now you know going to united methodist Mm -hmm. how has that changed in terms of kind of the genre of what a sermon looks like and we've got i've got listeners all over the map on this in terms of people who have kids going to masters and that are in the united methodist church so maybe just talk a little bit about that journey and about how that has affected just what what people expected on a sunday morning yes well that's a great question well when i was at masters um you would expect that a sermon would be long and an exposition of a passage of scripture. Yeah. And it would follow through and often highlight exegetical details, uh, go into great depth, move to other parts of scripture. Uh, and it was expected that if you went to college there and then went on to seminary, that your primary task as a pastor would be an expositor of scripture. And that was seen as something that was uh, really at the heart of the matter of ministry, extremely important. Um, and so I'm thankful for that. You know, it impressed upon me. What Master's College impressed upon me, though, is that the Bible is the foundation for preaching and that preaching would be centered on the Bible and would be primarily about the Bible. And my education there uh, prepared me to do that. I'm very thankful for the teachers that I had. I was in a pre-seminary major. We did uh, the languages, uh, extensive work in New Testament Greek and, and the Greek New, uh, and exegesis using the Greek New Testament, and then thinking about how then would this make its way into sermon. So the Bible was the focus, and that was really central for the education there. And I and it sounds like that that tradition has gone very well. So it's very exegetically focused. 
expository preaching. How did it shift when you moved into at Duke and when you were in the United Methodist Church? Well, I went to Duke and there I joined the United Methodist Church and eventually would be ordained in the United Methodist Church. The theology of preaching is in some ways the same and yet different in that for John Wesley, uh, he referred to himself as a man of one book, referring to the Bible. And if you read his sermons, we have about 150 of them that have been preserved in John Wesley's works. They always begin with the text of Scripture. Uh, he was, uh, had a, a BA and an MA from Oxford University. He was well-versed in uh, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, uh, and a really fine exegete. But for him, uh, preaching was not about the Bible as much as it was the proclamation of the gospel hmm. out, which come, flows out of Scripture, and it was oriented towards forming people to live as Christians in the world. And the Wesleyan emphasis on the Christian life is holiness, that people whose lives are devoted to God and, and are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Wesley, this is the way I explain it to my students. Yeah. At Master's College, uh, we were taught to look at the Bible, and the Bible was front and center. Uh, at Duke, we were taught to look through the Bible to see life in the world through the lens of Scripture. Okay. And there's a difference there. Uh, you're still working with Scripture and taking it seriously, yet one looks at and the other looks through. Uh, Craig John Calvin uh, put it this way, when you wear eyeglasses, you put the glasses on and you look through them, you don't look at them. Huh. If you look at them, you can't see the world. But if you look through them, the glasses then make the world clearer so you mm. can see it more truly. And at Duke, uh, with the strong emphasis on biblical interpretation in the whole Christian tradition in which uh, Wesley was anchored, yeah. the emphasis was looking through the glasses huh. to see life and light of who God is and what God is up to. So that was that was a shift yeah. for me. That's a great distinction. You know, sometimes I've heard, because I'm a New Testament guy, and you preach in the Old Testament, and I've heard the advice, what do you do in the Old Testament? Well, you get to Jesus as soon as you can. Yeah. It sounds like in the Wesleyan tradition, it's, well, you get in the passage, but you get to the gospel as quickly as you can. Yes. So and sometimes those exegetical details of the passage stay in the in the shadows if we can just get to the gospel quickly and how that informs our how we're engaging and embodying the gospel in this world. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. So you do the exegetical work, but you don't dump all of it into the sermon. Yeah. Because because the text and the sermon is a means to something greater which is a means of grace, and it, it's to lead us to Christ so that we encounter Him and our lives are transformed to, to live as disciples in the world. Yeah, I love, I love how preaching and teaching so much inform the ecclesiology and, and are kind of like transparent towards the ecclesiology. What is the church about? And so much of that has to do with what a pastor does when they get up on Sunday morning does. and what they're trying to accomplish. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the idea of, of just understanding systematics ecclesiology affects how you're going to approach your proclamation on a Sunday morning. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and, and in the Wesleyan tradition, uh, ecclesiology is not just a collection of individuals. Ecclesiology is a community bound together by the love of the Holy Spirit, uh, people who are, uh, who are followers of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. So the primary task of preaching is formative. Uh, and so the end of preaching is not the sermon. The end of preaching is how the people are formed, uh, those who hear the sermon. And that's really what measures preaching. Huh. It's not that it was a great performance, that the people love the preacher, but... Or it was content-rich. Or content-rich, yeah. but what do these people look like? Huh. Uh, as a result of the preaching they hear. That's a great, you know, for me, and a lot of the listeners come from non-denominational Bible church and Bible, you know, that's the kind of formative tradition that I've come from. So being able to engage in hearing how that might sound or might, what approach might be different from a um, from brothers and sisters in another kind of arm of Protestant Christianity, especially from a more Reformed perspective to a more Wesleyan perspective, 
I mean, we're just we're on the same team. We're trying to do, you know. We although are. it definitely can get contentious at times, for it sure. It certainly can. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the question about the the journey from Masters to the United Methodist yeah. Church, um, I just I'm, it's curious, it's fascinating, and I love hearing people's story. We're all it's kind of a pilgrim theology in all of this. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. And in fact, uh, I've written about preaching as a pilgrim practice. Okay. It's a pilgrimage that the that the preacher and the people are taking it together. Yeah. And that means that it's always incomplete. It's never fully resolved. It's never finished. We, we reach a resting place for the time being, but then we move on again for another week. Yeah. And so, I mean, what that means is that preaching, there's a certain degree in which preaching is open-ended. Uh, we would use, I would never use this word in a sermon, but it's eschatological. Okay. And that the future comes to us in the risen Lord through the work of the Spirit, and we've never finally arrived. Mm. So, so preaching has to not only say that, but the way we preach needs to reflect that. Okay. That yeah. we're open, that God is calling us forward. There's always more. We're, we're never there. We have yet, not yet to arrive. We live by hope. Yeah. And we walk by faith and not by sight. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, so let me, let's get into a little bit of the Mike Pascarello secret sauce. So you get so you get a passage, yeah. and you you know um, is do you use a lectionary in the Wesleyan tradition, or are you coming up with your own series and stuff uh, like that? I was taught to use the lectionary at Duke Divinity okay. School, and I was a full time pastor for eighteen years, and I preached from the lectionary that entire time. Okay, so for me, uh, sermon preparation would be working with the lectionary. Yeah, and what I would do. Uh, the lectionary for folks who are not familiar with it follows the Christian year. It begins in the season of Advent and it moves all the way through all of the aspects of the ministry of Jesus. And it calls the church and summons the church by means of scripture to follow him and identify with him uh, from his advent, his birth, his epiphany, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, the outpouring of the spirit, and then the long journey until the final advent and the okay. consummation of all things. It's a wonderful story. Yeah. And so I preached it that way. And I would take a season at a time, uh, and I would usually take anywhere from a half a day to a day, mm -hmm. and I would look at the, the recommended readings for each Sunday uh, for the next season, say the season of Lent yeah. for each Sunday, and, and I would make some preliminary judgments as to which of the texts would be the primary one for preaching. Because you get a choice between there's a gospel reading, there's an epistle, epistle reading, and a psalm or Old a, Testament. There is a psalm and an, and Old, an Testament. Old Testament. Okay. And I would settle on one as the primary text uh, that I would do for each Sunday. Yeah. I'd just write a brief sort of uh, focus statement as to what I thought I was going to do. And this is all advanced work. This is all advanced work yeah. to kind of get a sense of how one week would lead into another right. and there would be continuity right. and how I would tie them together. Uh, and then I would pass on that information to our director of music and he would use that in preparing for worship. Right. And we were off, and uh, at times it was amazing how the music and the scripture and the sermon mm. just came together so beautifully, you know. And, yeah. and uh, but, but I never prepared sermons until the week of of, of uh, that I was going to preach it. So a week before? So just I would start on Monday before. morning, mm -hmm. I'd look at the text, and then I would live with it all week long. Now my my habit, this is what I tell students, everybody's got to have a habit or a discipline. Absolutely. And, and for me, your, my secret sauce <laughs> is first thing in the morning, I never studied in the building called church. Okay. Uh, I did all my work in the coffee shop. All right. All the writing I've done over the years I did in a coffee shop. What was it about that? That what is that? Does it, do the people give you energy? Does it the the kind of anonymity of the crowd kind of a thing? The anonymity, uh, being close to people, reminded me that what I was doing should should not be abstract and distant from distant from people's lives. I also found that for me, the background noise helps me to focus and concentrate, uh, and and that's important to yeah. me. Uh, so, for example, I'm one of those people that I can't study in the library because it's too quiet. Too quiet. Somebody makes some noise. I'm distracted. Yeah. But with background noise, I'm comfortable and I'm at home. And, and that's worked for me for many, many, many years. Uh, so I would go to the office later in the morning, 
my my way of working was that if I was in the office, if someone called, if someone stopped by and wanted to see me, I wanted to be available to them. Got I it. didn't want to say to them. And if you're preparing a sermon. Yeah, I'm preparing a sermon. So I did everything away from the office. Right. And I and I guarded that time jealously. And I would not give it up unless there was an emergency okay. or I had to go to the hospital, yeah. something like that. And I usually would start about 7 in the morning and I'd go to 8.30 or 9. Okay. Now during that time, I read, I studied, I prayed, I reflected. Uh, I, I did that kind of work. Uh, that really grounded me and centered what I was going to be and do for the rest of the day. Yeah. Now, what what were you using to look at the text? What translation? Did you have multiple translations? How electronics? I mean, how 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 electronically are you an are you a luddite? Are you analog or? <laughs> I would say I'm probably somewhere in between. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I uh, but I would use uh, uh, some different translations. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do word studies and try to see how the original language really gave a sense of the the feel and the color and the tone and the mood and the action that was taking place. And was that, what what, what kind of resource were you doing that in? Were you using, um, I mean, did you lug your Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich into the coffee shop or? I would use a, a dictionary, you know, okay. basic tools. Okay. And then uh, some commentaries. Uh, I, I try to hold off using the commentaries though until I actually read and re- and work with the text myself. Yeah. And then I, I would consult with the commentaries to just make sure that I was in the, the general ballpark. Yeah. You know, and, and then to fine tune what I was doing. Yeah, to confirm. I've been accused of being a commentary hater mm-hmm. in class because yeah. I say you can't use them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. when you when you make your own observation and then you come to the commentary right. later, later, it confirms it mm-hmm. or you're like, oh, I totally missed. I, right. I saw this so differently. Yeah. But one way or another, yeah. it, it can invigorate later. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, if if you come up with an interpretation of a passage that no one has ever had in the history of the church, you need to consult commentaries, you know? You're either a heretic that's, or you should present a paper at a scholarly that's conference. That's exactly right. right. <laughs> and that's a fine line. It is. It is. So I would consult with them, and I wasn't tied to them, but they were helpful, Yeah. you know, because no one person can see everything. Now, the other thing that was helpful is that whenever possible, I was part of a small group of other pastors, mm-hmm. and we would get together and we would t- we we would also talk about our preaching. Working the same lectionary? Yes, oh, working okay. the lectionary, yeah. and we would say, uh, which one are you going to do this week, and how are you going to approach it? And that was very helpful as well. Uh, I, I think one of the things I try to impress upon students in preaching classes is that perhaps the greatest challenge for pastoral ministry is being isolated and lonely and that you need others and we learn and we grow together and uh, I mean the Lilly Foundation has poured millions of dollars into the study of pastor well-being and they find that pastors have all kinds of troubles when they're isolated and lonely Uh, and I found that you know just being able to talk through just the work we do as pastors but specifically what we do in preaching was extremely helpful over the years and encouraging and illuminating and I would recommend it for any working pastor. That's really a great would. that's a great word. I I always joke because I work with a lot of pastors and I always um, if I meet a new pastor I always tell them, well yeah the motto of pastors is grind away in isolation. Mm-hmm. You know and, and right. pastors immediately get it like oh no you've been there you know <laughs> yes and it can be very lonely especially if you're more introverted mm-hmm. and you're not naturally reaching out to other people. I think a, in a, a discipline of being in a group says, oh, I, I have to go, even if I don't feel like it, but I know it's going to be good mm-hmm. at the end. Well, we need that. And the other, the other aspect of that that's extremely important is it reduces the sense of competition in ministry. Yes. And it encourages cooperation and community. Be, and, and many people would say, oh, well, pastors aren't competitive. Well, that's just not true. Well, gosh, yeah. They're fiercely competitive. Yeah because we're subject to all the temptations everyone else is. Yeah. So, so to be able to work with others rather than against them yeah. is a great, great thing. When, here's, a, here's a question. Um, when was the first time you heard someone else's really good sermon and you were happy for them? I mean, I think as a pastor, yeah. that's a journey. Like, I, that's not, I mean, mm. it's been a while. And actually, but when you're a pastor and you hear a good sermon, you're like, either dang, I, I could have done that. Or yeah. like, 
when do you remember kind of rounding that bend a little bit? Well, it wasn't right away, and it certainly wasn't when I right, when I got out of seminary. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, I was still trying to prove myself. Absolutely. And was rather defensive, and I'd hear a peer preach a good sermon, and, you know, there's the feeling of, ah, shoot, why'd they do so well, you know? Uh, but now I think I've reached the point after a lot of years where to hear a good sermon is a great joy. Yes. I thank God for it. You know, I do. And, uh, and that's the way we should be. Yeah. We should be thankful the gospel is proclaimed, that people hear the word of God, that Christ is lifted up, because that's what we're called to do. Right. And that should be our primary aim. And that's what I meant about the competitive yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. It really erodes that, you yes. know, that sense of, of really being thankful to see others do well in yeah. their calling. To root, for, to root for another pastor. That's right. To knock it out of the park. Yeah. That's a, I'll tell students, I'll come and hear them preach, and they'll say, oh, I'm going to be nervous. And I'm like, look. I, you shouldn't be nervous that I'm there. I'm there to get fed, so you better yeah. you better bring it. Yeah. So it's yeah, I think it is, a, and it is a great gift for a pastor to root for another pastor. That's right. Yes. That's a wonderful thing. So finding a group like yeah. that is a beautiful thing. Yes. Oh, that's yes. good. And you had that. You were saying you had that in North Carolina when you were pastoring. I did. I I did. Now early on, I did not. I my first appointment uh, Methodist appoint their pastors. <clears throat> I was an associate in a large church. Okay. And the senior pastor was a very good preacher. He was very proud of his preaching. And I was, of course, new and trying to prove myself. And there was a lot of competition between mm. us to the point where members of the congregation would say who their favorite was, uh, which is not a good thing. Yeah. And even though that, that strokes the ego and makes yeah. you feel good, that's really not what preaching is about. Yeah. It's just not. Where do you think you found the best? I mean, you talked about partnering with your music person. Has there ever been a place where you've really encountered team within one congregation where it was week to week, maybe a sharing of two thirds you and one third someone else or something like that? Mm -hmm. How has team worked into that? And I guess the other follow up question to that is today in churches, you'll get a lot. There is a movement towards team Mm -hmm. where you don't have one monolithic voice that's doing it all. How do you help your students? to enter into team mm-hmm. as it relates to being in a, in a church? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Now, in the churches that I served, we did not have a preaching team. <clears throat> uh, excuse me, the, the folks assumed I was responsible for the right. sermon. However, um, I did talk with individuals in the congregation, uh, particularly those who were mature and whose wisdom I respected. And I would talk about what I was planning to do in preaching, and I would ask their thoughts and their opinions on it, and how what I was going to do would address the congregation, because they'd been there much longer than I. They knew the people well. And it was very important for me to be open to hearing uh, some of the things that were going on that people aren't going to tell the pastor about. Right. They're just not going to tell you. Yeah. you got to get your secret informants. You do. (laughs) And you need to trust folks that are mature. Yeah. You know, and who have your well, your best interest in mind as well as the church's best interest in mind. Yeah. And so that's one of the things I suggest to students is is that they, because they will often ask that. You know, whom can you trust? Yeah. You know, and I say you you need to be very discerning here, because you may get the opinion of a person who will tell you what they don't like, and it may be what they don't like, but it may not reflect where the what the congregation's thinking. And what their congregation actually needs. I also found it was very important when I moved to a church to learn their history. Yeah. Because who they are is the is the the long term consequences of what they've been through in the past, and it's very helpful to learn about what their struggles, their triumphs, uh, their all that they bring and carry with them. Yeah. Because often in congregations. There's not a means by which people are able to resolve long-term conflict, right. disappointment, failure, uh, and, and those things tend to be pushed down beneath the surface, and then in the most inopportune times, they will surface and catch Certainly. everyone by surprise. Certainly. Uh, there's a lot about that that I think pastors need to be aware of. Uh, you know, the person who helped me the most was Eugene Peterson yeah. in understanding how that works. He was extremely helpful. I read him the entire time I was a pastor. That's great. I I definitely recommend 
working the angles yes. under the unpredictable plant. Exactly. I mean, those are yep. great, just about pastoral vocation, pastoral call. Those are fantastic books. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll mm -hmm. put those in the show notes for some links on that. Now, you're, so even though you're, you, you're a professor of preaching, there has to be something, I mean, and it, and it must invigorate you to engage in the process of preparation. Um, what are the things that you really get excited about, about preaching, and what are the things that either drain the energy or you just, like, I'll procrastinate before I ever do that? Um, one of the great joys is having to preach from a text I've never preached from before. Oh, yeah. New discovery. Because mm -hmm. I love discovery and I love to learn new things. So uh, to, to, to choose to preach from a text that I've never gone to before oh. instead of a familiar one is invigorating for me. Yeah. And I get really motivated about that. I'm intimidated by it as well. <laughs> like, oh boy, I, I, this is not something where I can fall back on what I know right. or what's familiar. Uh, but at the same time, I find that that draws me into it and really gets me going. Yeah. So that's exciting to me, yeah. uh, doing something I haven't done before. Um, I'm not a procrastinator. I was early on, and I learned the hard way. That's not a way to go. Yeah. So I start on Monday, and I work every morning through the week. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the, 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 if you call it a method that I teach my students and I practice myself, I learned from Tom Long, his book is The Witness of Preaching, which is a, a really popular book. Uh, to put it very succinctly, Tom says that for a sermon uh, to be clear, it needs a focus and a function. Hmm. And, and the focus is the big claim that the text is making on us. What is God saying to us and what is God doing? And then the function would be how does the sermon serve the text to do what it wants to do? Uh, now, I, w I worked with that the entire time I was a pastor, and, and it helped me because, see, I'm one of those preachers that I want to tell you everything I know, and I get very excited about sharing, you know, what I've learned along the way. Right. But if you dump all of that in a sermon, I mean, well, here's an example. I was a brand-new preacher right out of seminary, and one morning a fellow said to me, that was a really good sermon. You need to chop it up into four pieces and spread it out over the next month. <laughs> now, that's an example of me. Yeah dumping everything I knew into right. it. Uh, it did not have a clear focus, and the function wasn't clear. Yeah. So I, what I imagine folks listening to me were thinking, well, he Mike sure sounds like he knows what he's talking mm -hmm. about, but we have no idea where he's going with this. And what we should do with it. What do we do with it? Because yeah. he talks about this, and then he talks about this, and then he talks about this. So my rule of thumb is do one thing and do it well. Mm -hmm. Now, you can divide that into parts very easily, but do one thing and do one thing well. Mm -hmm and make it as clear as you can and open it up as fully as you can so that when folks leave, they've heard from Romans 8, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And you've told them what that love is like. You've told them mm -hmm. the kinds of things that we think can separate us. Yeah. You've given them hope. You've encouraged them to believe and to trust. It's folk, there's a focus and a function yeah. that comes right out of the text. Yeah. Now see, and, and when I would work during the week, I would delay arriving at that too soon. Because yeah. I'm one of those, my imagination kicks into overdrive when I read the text. Yeah. And I immediately start thinking of 10 things I can do. And so I learned over the years to say no. To edit, to make those hard decisions, the That's cutting right. room floor. That's right. Yeah. And just wait and wait hmm. and wait. And I would usually wait until at least Wednesday to begin to narrow down from all that I was reading and thinking and gathering. Yeah. And then by Thursday, I would pretty much settle on focus and function. And I would shoot to write the sermon, and I'm, I, I would always write a manuscript to help me clarify my thinking. Uh, I would write out the sermon either Thursday afternoon or Friday morning. Yeah. And then when I finished, I would go in the sanctuary, and I would spend a couple hours practicing the sermon. And I would envision the people sitting there. And I, and I would edit the sermon as I practiced okay. it. And I would stop and ask myself, now, I know that so-and-so is going to be sitting back over here in the last row on the left. And what 
I just said, is that going to fly over her head? Uh, because she's just not going to understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, or, and I would do that. I would, I would, because the sermon is not for me. The sermon is for them. It's the Word of God for the people of God. Right. So I tried to keep that in my mind as I moved to the end of the week. I never did anything on Saturday. Okay, I Saturday just, just... I just left it. Let it sit, let, let it, it simmer. Let it simmer, let it let it sink in. Uh-huh. And I, I just left it alone on Saturday. Yeah. Then I'd go to the church early Sunday morning before anybody got there, run through it a couple of times, and then I was ready to go. Yeah. Now, in that process, in that, that, that kind of weekly ritual... Um, I guess one question, not only when did you figure out how that worked for you, because I would imagine if you said you had some procrastination stuff early on when you were first, when did you feel like you got into that rhythm? But a secondary question, when do you feel like you found your voice? Yeah. yeah. It took about 10 years. Okay. It did not come immediately. Uh, and I tell students to be patient with that. That you have to grow into it. They're, they're the r- routine or their voice or both. both. Uh, I think the routine came earlier, but finding my voice where I really felt that I hit my stride was probably when I got to about ten years of just constantly doing what I described for you, yeah. and and more and more recognizing I have strengths and I have weaknesses, and I have some gifts, but I don't have all gifts, and and that that's okay. And that if I offer to God what I've been given, then God will be pleased with that. And I don't have to be someone else. When I first started, I wanted to be someone else. So I preached like people I admired. Yeah. And there's Who were some of the people that you admired? Well, one of my mentors at Duke was Will Willimon. Okay. So I, you know, I wanted to be like Will. Actually, before that, though, I wanted to be like John MacArthur. Okay. I wanted to be a great expositor. And, and I thought, you know, I, I would go to MacArthur's church and I would listen to him take two verses in Romans and spend an hour unpacking two verses. And I thought, and I'd bring my Greek New Testament with me and sit there and I would think, oh, someday <laughs> that's going to be me, you know? Yeah. And, 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 but I realized, but I'm not him. Yeah. I'm me, you know? And so over time, I, 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 I reached the point where I can accept who I am and what I have to offer, which is not the same as everyone else, right. and that's okay. That's that's perfectly all right. Yeah. So, but that took a while. Yeah. It really did. It took what a helped? While. What helped in that process? Like, what were some of the practices or people that did help you kind of arrive at the best version? Mm-hmm. Well, I would you? say one thing that was very important is the people who affirmed what I was doing, and and I trusted their voices. So that they were saying, who you are is okay. Yeah. And what you have to offer is okay too. And, and, and just work with that. Yeah. And they would point out things about me that I didn't necessarily see in myself, but it was very good for me to hear. Because the more I heard that, the, the less I wanted to be, wished, the less I wished I could be someone else. Yeah. And the more I realized the only self I can be is the self God has given me. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, and you know what the the hard part is? You've got to learn. You got to find your voice while you're doing it. While you're doing. While it. you're doing. That's it. right. And yes. so, <laughs> it's so yeah frightening to think. That's right. Especially if you ha- if you're you have a sense of I don't want to give out something that's not fully formed and fully just whether it's perfectionist or whatever. But you've got to give something out, and then a couple weeks later you look back on it, and you're like, oh, that was yeah. that was bad yeah. or just not good. A key in this was learning to, to trust myself, huh. that I actually have something to say yeah. and that I don't have to borrow what other people do in order to have something to say, yeah. that, uh, that I actually can do this work. Yeah. And, I, and that, I think, is just a growing process. Yeah. It is. But uh, go back to what I said earlier, doing this with other pastors who were friends was extremely helpful. Oh, yeah. Very, very helpful. I think if you're isolated, the, the chances you're going to have a lot of doubts are greater yeah. and, and that you're going to then look for false ways to build your confidence yeah. rather than just being true to who you are in your own calling. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny because I've been, I was a pastor at a church down in Irvine um, for about six years and preached about a hundred sermons. It was about a hundred. And um, as an associate in that process 
and um, had then finished the PhD, moved into um, more academic work, but, but were, was preaching occasionally. And what was interesting is I'd look back on sermons and be like, oh, that wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, that one was good. I was onto something. And I think looking back on past sermons, just the notes, sometimes listening, but mostly just the notes and just saying, oh, no, that's what a good sermon looks like. Or I, oh, I remember that because I did not spend a lot of time, like the week was crazy and it, you know, the notes don't look as good because I didn't have enough time to polish them up. But I think I was helpful for my own voice to look back, even just have a little pause and to look back maybe once a year and say, oh, what were the good ones? What were the ones? And just kind of take a no-nonsense look, yes. which can be like pulling the Band-Aid off. But. It can be. Um, I tell students that I, I would devote time on Monday morning to process what happened on Sunday. Okay. And I did that for a couple of reasons. It was still fresh. I tried to be honest in evaluating myself. Yeah. But also I wanted to let go of Sunday sermon okay. so I could open my hands to receive the next Sunday sermon. Nice. And what I learned is often preachers drag baggage with them oh. from one Sunday to the other. And there's nothing worse than preaching to try to make up for a bad sermon. Yeah. You know, and then you try too hard or you do too much or you're too nervous or you know, whatever. And, and, and it's really hard, but it, it's, we need to let go and recognize that. Now, here's the good thing about preaching. You get to do it again next week. <laughs> Sunday's always coming. It's always coming. Always coming. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay, so you, you are an author numerous times over. Um, you co-wrote with um, Joel Green, Narrative Reading and Narrative Preaching, reuniting, right. New, Testament, reuniting right. New, New Testament Interpretation and Proclamation. And then you wrote, essentially, your, your, your textbook, Christian Preaching, A Trinitarian Theology of Proclamation, also Sacred Rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have done some biography work um, yeah. mm-hmm. on um, uh, John Wesley and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How has looking at those voices from the past, how has that affect the way you now approach the text as well as the craft of teaching? Uh, it would be hard for me to estimate just how much it's affected me. Oh. And the reason is, is that uh, preaching is an embodied witness. Uh, it, and, and you can't separate the preaching from the preacher. So one of the things that Willimon said to me when I was a Duke, he said, find someone you know, either a contemporary or someone from the past who's preaching and whose life really grabs hold of you and learn everything you can about them, huh. you know. And so I did, my dissertation was on the leading preacher in the English Reformation, his name is Hugh Latimer. So I did, and I did Latimer, Wesley, and Bonhoeffer. I call those the a preaching life. Huh. And it's a genre that I, I'm not going to take all the credit for yeah. creating, but I created a preaching life that integrates the preaching and the preacher, that tries to understand them in the historical time in which they lived, how their preaching influenced that time, and how that time influenced them in their preaching, huh. which is the, where we all live in ministry. Yeah. You know? And that's good to remember because as much as we do want to look back on some of these preachers or even get this kind of rubric from heaven that drops down this is what good teachers look like that's what it looked like in the first century and today it's like well we live in it at a time and a place right and we we right. need pastors and preachers mm-hmm. who are going to embody the gospel in that time and place right. and that might look a little different that's right. than Bonho- well Bonhoeffer's I mean mm-hmm. you know the rise of Nazi Germany and here's this guy right. embodying the gospel making really, really hard decisions. That's right. And that's what we can learn from. We, we, we're not in Berlin or somewhere in Germany in the 19, late 1930s or 1940s, but Bonhoeffer was courageous and he was faithful. He was willing to suffer and to sacrifice. Yeah. What drove him was his commitment to the gospel. Now, we can learn from all of that. Those, those are strengths. Those are strengths of Christian character that informed and shaped the sermons that he preached and the way he taught students of preaching. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to learn from Bonhoeffer in writing the book. Yeah. Now, the last sermon you preached here at the Fuller Chapel um, was, um, I can't remember the title. It was uh, uh, The Foolishness of the Gospel or... I can't remember. I can't either. <laughs> but but you were you were talking about Bonhoeffer and you used this wonderful yeah. quote from him mm-hmm. where he was talking about 
um, the German Lutheran Church, the state-sponsored church, and there were churches everywhere, but he said, invisibility is killing us. Yes. And in, in, this, in the message, you, you nail, I mean, it's just such a great line, and I think you got the weight of it mm-hmm. in, with the way, the way you said it. What, do you, what was that about? Like, what was Bonhoeffer saying in that, in that moment? You know, Bonhoeffer wrote that invisibility is killing us uh, from Berlin, uh, to a friend of his from his university days. It was late 1932. Uh, just a couple months later, Ad- Adolf Hitler was, would ascend to power in Germany. Bonhoeffer's concern was not that there were no churches in Germany. There, as you said, there were churches everywhere. The problem was is that the church was not embodying what it confessed to believe, mm. and it was invisible. It was not a visible witness Mm. to the truth of the gospel. For Bonhoeffer, the truth of the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified, Mm. the cross, and the wisdom of the cross. And he said Christians are essentially accommodated themselves. So there were a large group of people who called themselves German Christians who were enthusiastic supporters of Adolf Hitler and the nationalist social socialist agenda of Nazism. And a triumphalistic. Very triumphalistic, and they wanted to Nazify the church, Mm. Nazify the gospel, and Nazify Christianity. That's what they wanted. Uh, And and he was deeply concerned with what he saw. It was was a great compromise. They essentially Mm. given away uh, their voice to be a witness uh, in a time when uh, Christianity was being eclipsed Mm. in Germany. He was also concerned about Christians who withdrew completely. And uh, they decided that they were going to write it out. Uh, In fact, he referred to them, uh, if not in that letter, in another one around the same time, he referred to them as the arrogant orthodox. Mm -hmm. And they were concerned about their purity. They didn't want to get involved in the messiness Mm -hmm. of German life. And they thought if they could withdraw and and just protect their doctrinal purity and their spiritual purity, Mm -hmm. at some point it would be over and they would have passed through the whole thing. Oh. And Bonhoeffer uh, actually was uh, more upset with them than he was the German Christians mm. because they had basically just withdrawn from the, from the public realm and, and just given up their witness. So that's what he meant when he said invisibility is killing us. You have German Christians waving the Nazi flag and then you have other Christians who have withdrawn and are keeping silent. Oh. And so there's no voice, there's no visible witness to, to counter uh, what they were, the darkness that was hanging over Germany and, uh, and the Nazis. Wow, so powerful, so powerful. On the Wesleyan side, for John Wesley, what do you feel like were some great lessons from Wesleyan mm-hmm. preaching and theology and interpretation? What, were some, uh, what are some yeah. things that you feel like you've, you've adopted or at least been challenged by? Uh, Wesley's a great example of the integration of theology and practice. Uh, he used the 18th century term called practical divinity. Uh, we wouldn't talk that way. Right. We might say practical theology in our time. Okay. But for Wesley, theology was not an abstract thing you just talk about. Theology was to transform life. So he was a great example of someone who was a, a very, very fine theologian but saw theology in service of making mature Christians. Mm. And that informed and shaped his preaching very, very much. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book on Wesley. I yeah. wanted to learn about my own tradition yeah. and its deep roots. And Wesley had deep roots in the early church, in the medieval church, in the Reformation. Uh, and he drew from all of them. Uh, he was a priest in the Church of England right. and, w- and remained that until he died. And that comes through uh, very clearly in everything that he does. But he was a good example of integrating what we learn in seminary. Mm. Because my concern in preaching is what we learn in seminary is so divided into separate disciplines right. that they, we really don't know how they work together. Right. And Wesley was an example of how he thought of them as a single thing that worked together right. uh, and that all of it points in the direction of leading us to God. Yeah. Well, I guess even that this podcast is born out of that tension of, you know, you teach preaching, I teach New Testament. Mm-hmm. When we get to in, when we're breaking a passage down in my class and someone asks, well, how would you preach that? I say, well, that's not what this class is about. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So to be able to integrate this, so Wesley is a great example of of a yes. fully fully orbed approach from 
exegesis to systematics yeah. into, into preaching. Now, what about Latimer? Latimer was the leading voice in the English Reformation. Um, this is when, uh, in the 1540s, when the Church of England became a Protestant church. Right. Uh, it was, uh, he began his ministry under Henry VIII. Everybody knows about Henry right. VIII. And then when Henry died, his young son, Edward VI, became the king, and the church became officially a Protestant church. So you can imagine, Craig, you have everyone in England, if they're born in England, they're baptized and they're a member of the church. Right. And at that point, they all saw themselves as Catholic. Right. They belonged to the Church of Rome. And then overnight, almost overnight, the church becomes Protestant. And so Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, was the one who wrote the reforms in the church's worship, its life, and its preaching. But Latimer was on the ground, the leading and most huh. influential voice. And, and, and he was, he's one of what is called the Oxford Martyrs, uh, he was executed in 1955 along with Nicholas Ridley and then later Cranmer by uh, the, the Queen, uh, Bloody Mary, yeah. she's known in history, uh, when Queen the Church of, Scots, of England right. went back to being Catholic for a short amount of time. Mm. So Latimer was a, is a key figure in English church history huh. and a great, great preacher. And so I looked at you, Latimer, a preaching life. And it gave me a chance in studying him to look at what was happening in the 16th century, the larger context, how preaching affects that and how it affects preaching. I think those are lessons that still matter for today. Yeah, oh, that's great, that's great. One last question, just as we wrap up. Uh, Mike, you have got a great voice. You know, there's sometimes you. you sometimes you listen to people and you're like, oh, you know, what is that like a pack a day? Like, how do you get there? Like. <laughs> what what do you feel like has um, has kind of made that voice so rich? I mean, I know that sounds weird, but preachers have to take care of their voices. They do. Uh, well, at Duke Divinity School, we had a speech therapist who worked with the preaching classes. Really? Yes, and she was part of the program. And each student had to spend time with her. And she would watch us on video and meet and talk with us. And she would do lectures on caring for your voice. Huh which was very, very important. And up until that point, I had not thought about it very yeah. much. I had. I would imagine a lot of pastors today no. haven't thought much about it They haven't thought either. about it. I mean, the voice I have, I was born with, yeah, obviously. Yeah, well, you know. Right? And people would say to me, what a big voice for a little preacher, you know? <laughs> I think what helped me, if you, from my bio, you saw I was an officer in the United States Marine Corps. Yeah. And Drill there, <laughs> I learned how to project well <laughs> in, in front of a lot of people. A lot of men, a lot of Marines. That's yeah, right. That's right. So, so that became important to me, that, and just to use my voice uh, well. Uh, uh, our voice is an instrument God gives us. Yeah. It's a gift, yeah. and to use it well. Yeah. And take care of it. Yeah. yeah. Now, what? Um, maybe one more question, because sure. um, you see a lot of students come through Fuller. A lot of students through your class, and some have, some are already well formed in their preaching habits mm -hmm. because they've come here later in their ministry careers, and some they're very they're right on the very beginning. What do you think is what do you think are the biggest misconceptions of people coming in of, of mm -hmm. students coming in to the craft these days? Um, I mean, you don't have to speak. It, it is a general question, and I, I don't want to yeah. indict anybody on it. But what do you think are people thinking or have kind of a maybe need to be a little recalibrated on. Yes. Students who have no preaching experience, and more and more our students have no experience coming to seminary, they're intimidated. And they somehow think because they don't bring experience to the class that they won't do well. Hmm. And that those who have experience have an advantage. Huh. So on day one, I make it very clear that those who have experience do not have an advantage. In fact, they bring bad habits with them. <laughs> and that those who have not preached before really start fresh. Mm -hmm. And if they just follow what we ask them to do, they will actually be quite surprised at what happens. And I've, I've been teaching preaching for more than 20 years now. And, and time and time again, some of the strongest sermons I hear in a class mm -hmm. are by the students who've never preached before. Oh. And they don't know any better to just do what their professors in Bible told them to mm. do, what we tell them to do in the preaching class. They just 
follow and they do it and out comes some wonderful preaching. Oh, that's great. So, now I think I would attribute that to a couple of things. I think good teaching, yes. Yeah, but also the professor, fact I would imagine. That preaching is a gift of the Holy Spirit to the wow. church. Mm -hmm. And so my job as a teacher is to try to recognize that and encourage that to allow it to come forward. Yeah. And so there's probably something at work in them already. Because they're there and they're, they're, they're interested and they've exactly, been thinking about it. Exactly, the commitment huh? is there. There's a sense of calling. And maybe along the way, people have said, you need to go to seminary. You know, God's going to use you. Yeah. And the great joy of what we do is to recognize that and encourage it to go forward. Oh, that's great. What a yeah. great, what a great yeah. image. What a great, love what you're doing here at Thank Fuller. You. And just looking forward to hearing your students and more from you. If people are interested in listening to some of your sermons, obviously, I'm going to link the one at the Fuller Studio. Mm -hmm. um, but are there any others out there that, um, that oh, we, my. if someone wanted to find your voice? I tell people that uh, people will email me and say they Googled me and found YouTube, found me on YouTube okay. and send me emails and thank me for the sermon. Well, so they're out there. There you go. Yeah. Google Michael Pasquarello and we'll have links in the show notes. But uh, Mike, thanks so much for You're being welcome, part of the Greg. podcast. Yeah. And it's been real enjoyable. Looking forward to hearing more from you as we go along. Thank you so much. Oh, we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mike Pasquarello. If you'd like to hear one of Mike's sermons, we have a link in the show notes to the Fuller Studio site, which has a audio uh, link to his sermon from the Fuller Chapel. Um, if you've never seen a lectionary, uh, we have a link in the show notes to the United Methodist Church lectionary for 2018. Take a look. We also talked about the significance of the writing of Eugene Peterson for pastoral vocation. Uh, the three books that um, I would recommend are Working the Angles, Under the Unpredictable Plant, and The Contemplative Pastor. It's a bit of a set. The first one I read was Under the Unpredictable Plant, and it is, it's a great, sobering look at pastoral vocation through the um, Jonah narrative. So that's good. Uh, Mike mentioned a book by Tom Long, The Witness of Preaching. And then there's some links to some books that Mike has written. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Wesley, um, his Preaching Life series, um, also Christian Preaching, a Trinitarian Proclamation, and um, uh, Sacred Rhetoric, and then the book that he co-wrote with Joel Green, Narrative Reading and Narrative Preaching, Reuniting New Testament Interpretation and Proclamation. So plenty of reading. These academic episodes, they got plenty of reading. So, um, so go take a look at that and see where you might fill in some gaps in your own uh, training and your own professional development. Uh, take a look at that. So, a couple things you can do for us here at the Preaching Pastor, or the, sorry, the Teaching Pastor podcast. Uh, go to iTunes and rate and review us. That'd be fantastic. You can visit the Patreon site and um, and give to the podcast. That'd be very helpful as we move forward and um, do more episodes. This is episode 19, and uh, I've had a great time doing it and going to keep doing it. So, um, we will catch you on the next episode of the Teaching Pastor Podcast. Fades away. I wanna hear the good Lord say.